Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Winning is an everyday mindset, and we're here to help. I'm Craig Robinson. Join me and Coach John Calipari for Ways to Win. How do you play? How do you work when you're not at your best? Coach Cal and I'll share some wisdom from our time coaching, and we'll apply that wisdom to your off-court challenges. You gotta win every day. Find the Ways to Win podcast anywhere you listen. Hey, what up? Welcome in. I'm Doug Golly. This is All Bull. Uh, we got a lot to get to in today's episode. Um, I, I have promised you college basketball yak and talk for a long time, and I'll give you a little bit of it. And I should tell you that as you've downloaded and you probably already know this, Jack Easterby is our guest today. Uh, Jack is, he's kind of a, um, I want to say mystical, mythical figure who of course, uh, rose to prominence in helping run the Houston Texans. Um, over the past couple of years, that journey is a unique one as a college basketball player and golfer at a small school, in South Carolina. So how do you get from there to running an NFL team, especially with such a strong kind of religious faith based background? Thought it was interesting. And Jack's kind enough to share his story with us. Before we get to that, uh, look, a lot of people have labeled this anyone's year. And I think it's pretty obvious that it, in fact, is not just because Purdue lost to Northwestern or Alabama losing to Oklahoma should be pointed out that seemingly every year we have some of these what you would call a bizarre upset. The Northwestern one wasn't bizarre, but it was, in fact, an upset going back to Super Bowl Sunday. But it's a year where there's no clear dominant favorite team. I think Alabama is the most likely. And then you stop and think about it. They're the number one team in the country. They had a player who wasn't going to play for them the rest of the season who is in jail awaiting a trial for shooting and killing somebody in Tuscaloosa. That, that's crazy, right? The, the lesson in many ways is uh, a couple of things. In terms of the construction of the team, obviously, you know, you got um, and Brandon Miller, one of the, one of the elite talents in college basketball. So recruiting, obviously a big part of it, but bringing Sears back, who is an Alabama kid, went to Ohio U, was having a good career, transferring up a level. That's part of the obvious culture that Nate has built there. And then, you know, they, they get lucky with Quinterly unluckily hurting his knee, but now you get an established vet kind of old man point guard and look at what they've been able to, to, to sustain despite the off-the-court stuff. I, Alabama, when I saw them in person, I said, that's the best team in college basketball. They're number one for a reason. Um, all those things make total sense to me, but it hasn't been a bumpless road. And it's really an interesting story to watch from a guy like Nate Oates, who doesn't come from a traditional background, right? Was a high school coach a decade ago in Detroit, Romulus High School. Goes to Rhode Island, from Rhode Island to Buffalo, where he's Bob. He went from Danny's right hand man to Bobby's right hand man, then takes over at Buffalo and now at Alabama. And he has them to heights they haven't seen, you know, in 20 years. It's kind of cool story. Um, they're not flawless. We'll talk about that in episodes to come. Purdue, not flawless, but very good. Talk about that, that in episodes to come. The Big 12, I still believe, the best conference in the country. Not sure if there's a team that can get to a Final Four, let alone win a national championship, but it does have a remarkable depth of talented teams and talented coaches. Pac-12 obviously down, but that doesn't mean that I think UCLA or Arizona couldn't make a run. And then I want to talk some of these mid-majors and reestablish what a mid-major and a low-major actually is. All of this to come on All Ball as we kind of start to tweak it and get ready for the stretch run of the college basketball season. So there will be, we'll give you more basketball opinionated content in episodes to come. But let's catch up with Jack Easterby. If you Google Jack Easterby, 
It doesn't tell you the story. What's his background? How did he fall in love with sports? How did be? How did he? How did he get into the world of football as a basketball player and a golfer? It's all in here. Here's part one of my talk with Jack Easterby. I want to get to the start, okay? But it is Super Bowl week for you, a guy who's been spent a lot of time in the NFL. You obviously have a really unique path. But yep. when I when I when I say the Super Bowl. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? I think the week, right? The full week with your family and just the celebration that is the Super Bowl, right? Because it's more, so much more than the game when you're actually a part of it. Uh, going to the site, getting there, the fanfare of arrival, uh, obviously setting up the host location and, and having your family there, a part of it. Um, I just think the whole week uh, really is what comes to mind because the game in the end is a culmination of the entire week for that team. Um, and so, uh, so much has to do with the, the success of that week uh, from, you know, logistics of back and forth to usually a college where they have you hosted or potentially a, a you know hotel kind of where everybody's locked down. Uh, so I think Super Bowl week uh, really comes to mind more than even just the game. Is there a Super Bowl that stands out in your mind. It doesn't have to be one in which you were around, you know, as an executive it could be one as a kid, right? Like the, the, the one from my childhood, I remember the most was Montana uh, versus Marino uh, in Palo Alto. Right. Because I was, I mean, here's why, like my sister's ham hamster died at halftime, but plus <laughs> it was, it was Montana versus Marino. Right. And, and, uh, who didn't like Dan the man when you're a kid? And we thought because it was early in his career, he being a bunch of them, he wasn't, ends up being a famous one. And then fast forward to now, I think the one that I remember the most is the Patriots comeback against the Falcons. And mm-hmm. and the reason why for that one is um, at the time I lived in Connecticut, my kids were old enough to know and watch the game and to be kind of Patriot fans. My son at the time, I'm trying to think he was probably like, probably like in the sixes Friday, seven variety, maybe, maybe, maybe eight. Um, but he was a giants fan because of OBJ. Like everybody's a giants fan in, we were in Westport, Connecticut at the time. Um, but they had, we lived in another, another part of Connecticut, but they were all kind of like love Tom Brady. And I'll never forget that it was 28 to three. And I said, all right, it's bedtime. This sucker's over. And I tucked them all in mm-hmm. and they said, dad, will you wake us up if it gets close? And I was like, yeah. And well, what then, time was bedtime here? Well, we got to get, I got well, to the. I was on the East coast. So, okay. I mean, I don't know what it was. I mean, at the time it was probably nine o'clock or nine 30 or something like it was, I mean, you know, those games get, they get laid on the on the East Coast, and yep. but it was more than more than anything. It was like we had really built up. It was like the fir- it was probably the first Super Bowl that we I watched with my kids, where they were like watching the game, right? And um, and my producer so, at the you time. Remember the score? Do you remember the score when when they went to bed? Twenty eight to three. It's twenty eight <laughs> to three, and I was like, it's over. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm watching, and there's I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't know. And then when it was really close, I was so into it. I was like, do I wake them up? Because now they had been like, if they just went to sleep, you wake them up. But they had been asleep for a good amount of time. Mm-hmm. So then I, I I have it somewhere on my my camera where the next morning I woke them up and I said, do you know who won the Super Bowl? And they're like, the Falcons. Like, nope. <laughs> and they, you didn't wake us up. Anyway, what's your, give me your Super Bowl. Well, at some point, I probably need to get you uh, to give me, did you go hamster funeral at halftime or did you delay the funeral? Or uh, Well, what happened was, it, you know, the hamster has the, the wheel. And uh, I think Muffy or something was the hamster's name. And uh, uh, I just remember at some point I came into my sister, my sister, and she was in, in the other room. And I was like, hey, uh, uh, Muffy or whatever, he's not not moving. I think he's dead. And she's like, no, he's just sleeping. And then we, we did, we buried all of our animals. Uh, I mean, we lived in a small house in Orange, California. And my dad, as a gift to my mom for many a Mother's Day, would buy her like a plant or usually like a citrus plant. Mm-hmm. So we had a really good tangerine tree and there's a, a rabbit 
Uh, Lucky, our rabbit, was buried there, and the hamster was buried there as well. And to this day, my mom will tell you, that's why that tangerine tree is still alive and kicking because of all those nutrients from uh, from the dead animals. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Okay, so Super, Super Bowl, when I, the Super Bowl game can be any of them. It's in yeah. your mind. What is it? Well, I would say the Super Bowl within itself is such an such an event, right? It's a it's really an international event. So people around the world are, are locked in, and it hits every sector, right? Obviously, the advertising world, you know, if people that aren't even interested in football pay attention to the Super Bowl. And so, for me, you know, growing up in Columbia, South Carolina, we didn't have a, a team. Team, right? Uh, let's just call it right, because the Panthers weren't around until 1995. And so, um, for me, I think the Super Bowl, if I was have to say you know this Super Bowl was one where I just really kind of opened my eyes to the to the awe of all of it would probably be that Atlanta Super Bowl and the reason I would say uh, was because the intersection of all these different things um, that happened uh, you know were just kind of I don't want to say opened my eyes but it, it really opened my eyes to something I think that was bigger than uh, even football itself. You had the opening of this new stadium, right? So the Mercedes Dome there in Atlanta was really cool. You had this academic matchup between Bill and um, and Sean McVay uh, with a, a really unbelievable, you know, cognitively flexible game, you know, a, a chess match between a great offensive mind and a great defensive mind. Um, you know, obviously Atlanta being local there to Columbia, South Carolina, I had the regional bias of all of our friends and family were able to come uh, to that one. Uh, and then obviously, um, you know, we were blessed to win that game. Uh, so you had, you know, obviously the celebration that comes with that. So um, I think that 2019 Super Bowl would be the one that, um, or I guess it was 18. But yeah, the idea of of that one would be, you know, the most prominent memory that really sticks out um, because there were so many things in that game. It was kind of a, a slow game to start. Yeah, yeah. Um, they really struggled offensively. Um, had some chunk plays, and, and we did too, quite frankly. And then Josh kind of went freak mode, uh, Josh McDaniels, on some of the formation uh, stuff and began to move Gronk around and move, move Julian around a little bit. Uh, we started making some plays. Um, but just every layer of that game, uh, I think I'll always remember uh, for the rest of my life. Uh, even though the Houston comeback, which what you're talking about there, the Houston Ooh. game – versus Atlanta yeah. uh, was just you know, amazing comeback and the character of that team and all the things that have to happen right for that. I think that would be, you know, a second, second level down, but that, that Atlanta Super Bowl uh, against the Rams, I think was just, it was, it was an amazing memory. Well, it's interesting because I've had, I remember uh, being in training camp for the Rams the next year and in Sean, uh, you know, like off microphone, he's amazing. And he was just like, I got out coached. And he goes, it took us the whole first half to figure out what they were doing defensively. And then they had an injury. And so we come out with a whole plan and then they change what they're doing. And he goes, yeah, and that's Patrick Chung. Yeah. Patrick Chung uh, broke his arm. Uh, and Patrick Chung was really a Swiss army knife for us. I don't know if you remember yeah, much about him as a player out of Oregon, but I mean, Patrick Chung was a punt returner. He was a, you know, obviously a safety, but he could play nickel. He could play man coverage on, on the perimeter. He was a great athlete. And so he was really uh, a huge part of that plan where Brian Flores and Bill had created kind of a man and zone concept where we were communicating both sides of the line of scrimmage. And, and as you remember, Sean had done a lot of, you know, of the same personnel group throughout the year. And he was, uh, had created a lot of options off that one group. But we were able to watch Tate for, you know, there for a couple of weeks um, and really understand what we thought were indicators on certain things um, that they were doing. And so uh, we're really blessed to create a plan. And when, so when Patrick went out, we had to put a linebacker kind of in the spot where Patrick was and then uh, do some other things. But anyway, to your point, he admitted that, which I thought was so cool and, and showed some humility in Sean, right, is that he yeah. was able to say, hey, got out coached. And that's one of the reasons why I say, you know, in your in your home region, right, so I'm from South Carolina, this is sure. in Atlanta, brand new stadium, which was just beautiful, The you know, this Mercedes 
uh, Ben's uh, Stadium, which obviously has hosted now tons of different championships uh, since then. Um, and then that type of cognitive matchup, you know, with Brady and and McVay was kind of on the rise. And here's Belichick and, and Flores had established himself and McDaniels had established himself. And uh, so there was a lot of factors there at play. You mentioned Colum- growing up Columbia, South Carolina. Paint the picture of me. Jackie should be 10, 12 years old. What, what's, what's it like? So, obviously, when you're uh, in South Carolina in general, you're pretty much, you know, a Gamecock or a Clemson Tiger, right? You got to pick your side. So, it's like growing up in Alabama, Alabama versus Auburn. Um, I was a Gamecock. Uh, went to every University of South Carolina sporting event with our family we could go to from uh, growing up, you know, with uh, Sparky Woods and and then Brad Scott and then, of course, Steve Spurrier uh, when he got there. Um, really. Uh, Lou Holtz. Loved- wait, 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 Lou Holtz. Lou Holtz. Right. Yeah. And Lou Holtz is funny. You know, Lou Holtz paved the way for Steve really from an expectation standpoint. No question. I, 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 I think what I think what happened with Coach Holtz is because that fight happened. Yeah. It, it put like a bad mark on what he had done at South Carolina. Right. That's because a great point. Because South Carolina has always been, you know, a step, a notch below, especially in that part of the SEC at that time. You know, you always Florida was the dominant team. And then remember Tennessee, obviously, not just Peyton, but T Martin. And then you had you had Georgia that was always kind of around. And South Carolina was like an also ran until like Lou Holtz got them close. But the mm-hmm. fight at the end of his tenure, that's I think put a real mark on it where people didn't pay attention to the rest of it. You know what? That's great historian reference there for you because that's exactly right. I would say this one thing too is when you remember, you know, conference alignment, how big uh, that was at that time, South Carolina, when I was growing up, uh, wasn't in a conference. And so they obviously in the 70s were in the ACC and then transitioned out of uh, the ACC and were independents for a while. And so in basketball, you probably remember they were in the old Metro Conference uh, where they played Louisville and and had some, some Louisville, battles. Florida State, Cincinnati, right. Memphis, That's Memphis right. State, right? Yeah, That's right. That's exactly right. And so when I was growing up, uh, that was obviously they transitioned into the SEC. And I don't think anybody understood quite uh, what that would be as a blessing for a, a smaller state, right? In South Carolina, uh, in a platform and a, in a, you know, a media television audience to be able to get into, you know, that type of conference because that was the premier sports league. Even then, um, to be a part of that from a football perspective was awesome. So I think they were in the early stages of getting their feet wet in the SEC. And to your point, Lou helped that transition with an expectation uh, because he was a national name. So when he gets named the head coach, uh, now all of a sudden the expectations to compete were there. And then Steve came behind him and was really great about keeping in-state talent there, right? And so you had Clowney and you had Marcus Lattimore and um, obviously Stefan Gilmore. Those, those players stayed in-state, went to school there, and, man, they created an awesome buzz and, and won several, you know, prominent bowl games and participated in January bowls, which I think was new uh, for that state. So, yeah, that was it, man. It was football. Now, football Carolina uh, sports has always been – I say Carolina because, you know, yeah, we yeah. refer to the, the yeah. Carolina. Uh, it'd probably be a little different if you went 100 miles north. But, um, yeah, so it was sports um, and loving the Gamecocks and team. You know, team sports have always been a huge part of growing up for me um, and being a part of teams and different types of teams, um, you know, no matter which sport. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Winning is an everyday mindset, and we're here to help 
I'm Craig Robinson. Join me and Coach John Calipari for Ways to Win. How do you play? How do you work when you're not at your best? Coach Cal and I will share some wisdom from our time coaching, and we'll apply that wisdom to your off-court challenges. you got to win every day. Find the Ways to Win podcast anywhere you listen. What was, what was your family dynamic in terms of where did you guys live? Um, what, what was, you know, what were your parents doing? What were you into? Again, like, give, give me the, the, the 12 year old Jack Easterbrook. Yeah. So, uh, my mom was a banker, uh, with bank of America and obviously bank of America had several merges, uh, there through the late or yeah, the late eighties and early nineties as they kind of grew from CNS bank and then, uh, were, uh, merged East and West coach and into, uh, bank of America. Um, and then, um, so she was a banker and then my dad was, uh, actually a counselor. And so he, um, did, uh, vocational rehabilitation for, uh, people uh, who had substance abuse challenges. And so he would help uh, get them jobs and put them back in a uh, work setting that they were comfortable with and check on them, uh, for the state of South Carolina. Um, and we lived in a, in a, uh, just a, you know, we were a middle-class family in, in Columbia and lived in a, uh, you know, just a ranch style, three bedroom house there in Columbia. And, um, you know, had a basketball goal in the backyard, just like everybody. Uh, and, uh, yeah, really loved growing up in Columbia. You know, Columbia was one of those towns where it was, you know, mainly, you know, obviously the three, the trifecta is the university of South Carolina, uh, obviously the Fort Jackson, which is uh, a big army base there. Um, and then the capitals there. So the government, uh, obviously has a huge imprint, uh, on the big, um, the jobs of the town. So, uh, loved Columbia, loved uh, growing up there was big enough that you could get to some things, um, uh, and experience some things, but small enough where you knew everybody, uh, when you went to church on Sunday. How'd you eat your grits? Salt, pepper, cheese. Pepper, cheese. No butter, no butter, no butter. Um, you know, it's funny you say that mom, mom was a butter only. Mm-hmm. So we had butter on the table, mm-hmm. but we're going, we're going salt, pepper, cheese. I have, uh, my, my, uh, I have a dear friend who's, uh, his name's Adam Klug. He's a, he's a dog. He's a Georgia alum. He grew up in Atlanta and he has a, he has a great, great expression. He says, you know, uh, plain iced tea serves one purpose in this world. And I said, what is that? He said, to be sweetened. <laughs> and uh it, it's awesome because i spent a good amount of time in the palmetto state and and in the south and like you know it, it, like you have to you have iced tea it's sweet it's it's sweet tea it's not and it's just a different um i i it's it's a, such a south carolina specifically i really enjoy as a state and it is it's like you said like anybody in south carolina calls it carolina Outside of Carolina, if you call Carolina, they're thinking North Carolina, right? And so it's a little, it has a, but it doesn't have necessarily the little man syndrome that some states have. It's a very, feels like a very laid back kind of state. You would love this. Hey, you would love this. So before, obviously, sports nutrition was a huge part of the uh, (laughs) vocabulary of all athletics. I'll never forget uh, Friday afternoon, obviously in, in, in high school, you play Tuesdays and Fridays. I, I played basketball in, in high school and college. And so, uh, loved, loved Tuesdays and Fridays, right. Going to school, warm up suit, ready to go. And I'll never forget like leaving campus. Okay. Going with one of my friends who had a car to Bojangles. Okay. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, speaking of your, your, uh, your dietary question on, on grits and getting a fast feast, Okay, which is essentially nine pieces of chicken, yep. four biscuits, and basically just like grease, an IV of grease, what it really is, right? <laughs> and then we would get a half gallon of iced tea, which sure. is essentially, let's just say, equated to a melted popsicle, right? Yes, yes. Okay? Had, that's a, know, that's a great way. Yeah, it is a melted popsicle. I like that. That's yes. right. And so we would pound between the two of us pre-game, okay? This is pre-game. We would pound nine pieces of chicken together, one, you know, between the two of us. Uh, and then they would have like these sides that were like, you know, mashed potatoes and whatever, you know, collard greens or whatever they were. And we would do that as our pregame meal 
Um, we never really thought that correlated with why we cramped full body cramped at halftime, <laughs> but, but we did enjoy it every week. And, uh, so to your point that sometimes, uh, the, the dietary selections, um, that probably need to be audited there. High school basketball. What high school? AC Flora high school. How big? Gosh, it's probably about 1,200 when I was there. We were 3A. Uh, South Carolina had 4A. Um, now they've gotten, uh, I think, another tier classification there. But, yeah, we were we were 3A of 4A. So, you know, one of the bigger high schools uh, there in Columbia. Um, and uh, really, really enjoyed enjoyed uh, my time at AC Flora. What type of player were you? Uh, be Mark Jackson. So uh, probably – not enough, uh, good enough. You back, you back, you back guys down. Yeah, that's it. That's it. No, I'm turning. I'm turning my back. Right. I'm going to get the ball across half court. I'm going to pass it to a guy who can do something with it, and I'm going to go to the corner, and probably going to have my wrist taped, and probably going to be pointing out some things we should be doing from a screen perspective, um, but not going to do a whole lot with the ball in my hands. <laughs> who, who, who's your high school coach? You know, what's interesting, my high school coach was a guy named Don Bell, who actually passed away uh, right after I left uh, high school uh, from colon cancer, uh, but made a huge impact on that region. He was originally from Cookville, Tennessee, um, came to Columbia, um, I guess, four or five years before I came, uh, started playing in high school. And um Started playing varsity as a sophomore, um, and gosh, we we were pretty competitive. Made the playoffs every year, um, and he was just a great man. Loved us, uh, worked us. Um, we pressed full court. Uh, you know, we had a pretty good uh, vibe at the games. You know, sold out. I'd say it was a smaller gym, probably you know eight hundred to a thousand people in the gym. Um, competed every week. Didn't have anybody who ever blew us out. Um, and uh, Don Bell, though, great, you know, went to camp. You know, you probably remember those days, right, traveling in a bus. Uh, six, I always say we went 16 passenger van with 16 passengers. <laughs> so, that was the worst. That was the worst. That's right. When your legs are touching, that's like, ooh, I don't know, I don't know if, I, if, I, if I like that. Um, so what was your mom's influence on college and your thoughts on college? Because uh, just, you know, my – my, you know, my, my parents both uh, went to and graduated from college. And so it wasn't like in my house, there wasn't really a question about it, right? You're, it was what college you're going to and could you get a college scholarship? So that was really my, my sole focus from about, you know, right before I entered high school on my brother and sister uh, went to school at UCLA. My sister was a cheerleader. My brother turned down like low level scholarship offers and then went to Drake. But for me, it was like, I just, I want to be a college basketball player. Um, you're in high school. What was your focus like in terms of college? Yeah. So uh, probably similar to some others, uh, you know, obviously wanted to play college athletics, you know, so many times when you're in middle school and high school, college athletes, and still to this day, they're the heroes of the community. Right. So you look up to you. Buy you're, a you're in a college town. So, of course, that's exactly right. Like, you know, getting to know the uh, 1997. You may remember this. Uh, South Carolina had a really good uh, basketball team. Right. One. The, uh, I think they were the two seed overall lost to Coppin State in the first. E.J. Mackey. That's e. right. E.J. Mackey. Yeah. Um, you know, Larry Davis, Melvin Watson. So I, I wanted to go play college basketball and knew probably wasn't good enough to play, uh, you know, at a bigger school, but had always wanted to do that. I also played golf. And so kind of what happened was, um, you know, had some small college offers um, out of state and uh, in state. And that region has a ton of liberal arts, small colleges, right? You know, from, you know, Wofford to Furman to, you know, College of Charleston. And they're all pretty good in sports, pretty good in basketball. And so, um, you know, was visited all those. And then my senior year, actually the end of my junior year and into my senior year, I actually had some pretty good, uh, decent results uh, in my spring golf seasons. And so started popping up kind of this weird opportunity to play both in college, uh, which was um, obviously a rare thing. And so um, Newberry College out of the blue um, calls me um, about halfway through my senior year and says, hey, come up, you know, um, and uh, come visit. We want to make you an offer and, and talk to you a little bit about 
coming here. So my mom being the uh, financial wizard that she was, as soon as they said that the math was going to be, you know, we were going to be in the black for the Easterby family going up to Newberry. It was like, Hey, you know, this is probably where you're going. (laughs) So we went up there, visited, uh, was blessed to play both sports there and, and really enjoyed that. And she was, she was instrumental because I think what she said was, you know, a chance to play both sports, obviously to not go in debt, but also to um, be able to not be too far from home. And she knew I needed to, you know, stay connected with my family and friends that I'd made there in Columbia. Um, so what's 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 Newberry like? How how small? What What's the town like? Very small, very small. So I probably wouldn't be great on demographic numbers now. It's been a while since I've been there, but um, very small, uh, very small college. Actually, I would say my college was probably smaller than my high school. So Newberry was probably right at a thousand uh, when I got there. Most everybody's an athlete. So 400 and something athletes uh, did have football, South Atlantic Conference. Um, I think there was probably 15, 17 sports um, there, um, originally a Lutheran, uh, institution founded by the Lutheran, uh, church of America. Um, yes, fraternity, sorority life. Um, you know, everybody knows everybody in the cafeteria. Um, you know, basically, uh, you know, small college, uh, in rural South Carolina. So, uh, the golf element to it, it's, it's such a different thinking man's sport as opposed to basketball, which it takes, it takes thinking, right. But it's mm-hmm. also a lot of it's kind of reactionary. So what's interesting to me is like, you learn about people and how they process things. Um, how are you able to process the stress of golf? That that's the big thing, right? I mean, obviously you have to have the skill and the mm-hmm. re- and, and repeat the skill, but it takes a special kind of human being to be able to process the stress while thinking and executing your plan. What, what was, what, how do you have that ability? What, what do you do in order to process the element of stress and still be able to perform? You know, it's, that's a great question because, and let me brag on basketball players uh, just for a second. And I know you know, this is, and, and, you know, fast forward and I'll come backwards is, you know, I probably didn't realize until I sat in my first new England Patriots team meeting, how many different, um, situational events happen in a basketball game um, in relationship to how many different things throughout the game have to have special application. You know, for example, an out-of-bounds play. Well, an out-of-bounds play, you know, if it's on one side of the floor, is different than an out-of-bounds play on a different side of the floor, right? And so that's a simple thing, right? Sideline out-of-bounds is different at the end of the shot clock than it is at the middle of the shot clock, right? And so if you just take a list and you go through all those different scenarios, right, and then you take that and let's say cross-pollinate that same analysis into football, you would see, okay, well, if we have one timeout and we're starting a two-minute drive, right, that's one set of circumstances. We have two timeouts, that's a whole different set, right? We have a kicker that can hit from 50-plus, right, that's one set of circumstances. We have a kicker who's missed two, right, in the first half, and we're trying to get him to the, you know, 25-yard line, that's a whole different set. And so – one of the things that's very interesting is I don't think I realized until I got to New England because Bill was such a mastermind on situational football, how many things I learned growing up playing two sports at the same time. Sure. Changing those demographics, right, from different demographics kind of, you know, in basketball and uh, inner city basketball in Columbia, South Carolina. And then obviously, you know, some of the different people that you meet through the golf community. Um, and then also the games themselves, right? So, you know, I didn't hit the fairway all the time, right? So you're in the rough, you're trying to play, okay, do I lay this ball up? Do I go for it? You know, do I, um, you know, make sure that I, you know, take double out of, out of play? Uh, and then the same thing with basketball is, you know, moment to moment. So the speed of them are, are different, uh, yeah. but I would sell basketball short from the standpoint of the cognitive flexibility uh, that's demanded of that game. I think it's a great point. You know, I had a I had a talk with Phil Sims once. It was it was early on when I started working at CBS, and he goes, I I, I said something in regards to football, and I was at I'm, I'm I'm a big, and I don't know if you're this way. I I ask a lot of questions, especially of people who I respect their opinion, and I kind of learned like real NFL football when I was at ESPN. I had a show it was four to seven, and on Mondays. Uh, Rick Spielman would come in and mm-hmm. and he'd have this gigantic salad 
and <laughs> he'd do it. He would do a, he would do a segment with me and then he would kind of hide out because like back in those days, the ESPN, ESPN news was constantly had different shows and he right. would just say like, Hey, I'm doing radio. I can't. And then Tim Hasselbeck would come in mm-hmm. and he would do, and then we'd go and we'd watch the Monday night football game together. And then Tim would basically show me like, okay, this is actually what, where the ball is supposed to go. Like he'd stop it and we'd watch it. And I had, it, you know, it's like, it's like watching a basketball game with me. It's, it's very different, very different experience. And I'm sure you had that at an even higher level when you got to New England. But, but the part that, that I found, um, I, I, I thought that Phil Sims got and most athletes get is you, you mentioned the cognitive ability. Like sports do really translate, you know, mm-hmm. and you don't know nearly the level of detail that a football player understands especially a quarterback or a safety because they can see the whole field, they can process it, but there's still a lot of parallels, you know? I mean, it's like you point out about Bill and, and Patrick Chung, right? Hybrid yep. players, hybrid players. We're, so we're talking about basketball, positionless basketball. That's the, that's the new age in football, which by mm-hmm. the way, it's kind of one of the things that Bill was able to bring. They weren't that's a three, four right. team, and they weren't a four, three team. They just played defense and they based upon their matchups and their personnel groupings, right? So I, I agree with you that there's these things that, that carry over. Um, okay, so what is that experience like, though, of playing two very different sports in college at the same time? Like, how does, how does that even work? Well, so I would say it was extremely difficult from a logistical perspective, right? Because um, uh, fortunately enough, um, the summer golf schedule uh, would really transition. So the amateur golf schedule in South Carolina and around the country really is June, July, um, you know, the U.S. amateurs later in the summer. And so everyone's kind of shooting for that. And then uh, the college golf schedule starts as soon as you get back to school. So while uh, the basketball team is running and lifting, um, I would r- go to their running and lifting early in the morning. And then when they would just do shooting and things in the afternoon, I'd be at the golf course. And so then uh, we would usually play three or four tournaments um, in the fall. Uh, so uh, we would usually play you know, a tournament right when we get back to school, maybe a tournament later in September, maybe two in October. But we were usually done uh, somewhere in the middle of October uh, with golf. And so golf was actually a two-semester sport, partly in the fall and partly in the spring. Now, the cool thing about the way the rules work then, and, and you probably remember these rules, is there were very distinct dates that you could practice winter sports. And so um, there was never any basketball practice before, you know, I thought, I think it was maybe October 15th. And so uh, I was blessed because I would really be able to train with the basketball team uh, but then perform with the golf team. So I was doing a lot of the physical stuff uh, with them and then uh, would obviously perform with the golf team. So, and it was before golf did a ton of the workout stuff that now is real popular with golf, right? Um, that obviously Tiger is made so popular from a physical uh, fitness perspective. So anyway, yeah, so I did, I did the kind of the double whammy. And then what would happen was when I would go into, um, in the basketball, uh, naturally, it was a time off for golf because, you know, the weather's not as good in November and December. So you've got a lot of rain and, um, you know, cold weather. And so people aren't playing as much golf. And so what I would try to do during basketball season is just really just short game stuff, right? A lot of putting and chipping uh, on off days um, and potentially like the day after a game, you know, we play a game, we go play Catawba College or something on a Saturday and then we'd be off on the, from the basketball team on that next Sunday, and I would go out to the golf course, um, putt and chip, and play, maybe play 18 um, and experience, you know, just kind of making sure club is in my hand uh, during the week. And so uh, it was a really uh, uh, challenge uh, logistically, um, but it was a blessing. I mean, it was the uh, best time in my life, two sports in college. Uh, getting that many teammates to get to know that many different people to go those that many places. Um, gosh, we were able to go to the West Coast and play in golf tournaments up and down the East Coast. And then with basketball, obviously played tons of different, you know, um, historic venues. Um, and, you know, we had some success uh, in both sports by the time we were wrapping up there at Newberry. Uh, enjoyed every minute of it. So you, you get done playing in college. And what, what, what was the plan? What would you think? 
this is not what you did. What was your plan coming out of college? Well, I would say just like you, I mean, when you're a part of team sports, right, your whole life, you crave to be around a team, right? You crave that, that, you know, making fun of each other in the locker room. You crave that, you know, uh, getting in a bus and and going somewhere and trying to achieve a mission. And so for me, um, you know, I got back to Columbia, South Carolina. I had interned with the Jacksonville Jaguars and salary cap administration uh, and done some things in the 2004 uh, summer and was blessed to have some mentors in that organization. It showed me a lot of different aspects of the business, um, you know, both in uh, previous summers and then formally in 2004. Like, like who, like, like who, and, and they don't have to be known commodities. Who, who are these people who are mentoring you or helping you when you're with the Jags? So, yeah. So uh, the salary cap was very interesting. Tim Walsh was, he's actually still there. He was, um, uh, their salary cap director, uh, Paul Vance was there. Um, Shaq was the GM. Um, and this was kind of transition. Wayne Weaver was the owner uh, there in Jacksonville at the time, um, who was uh, obviously a hero to that community for bringing that team to Jacksonville. Um, that story is so cool to study. Um, not that dissimilar to, you know, the McNairs and how great they were to bring football to Houston. But uh, anyway, uh, Tim Walsh uh, helped teach me the academics. I'll never forget Tim Walsh threw a contract on my desk uh, and said, hey, study this. Uh, and I want to say it was maybe David Garrard or Reggie Williams or one of those guys that was popular uh, back in the day. And I remember looking at it and not knowing what I was even looking at from a language perspective. So, so, what, is, so, what, is that, so what is that like? Okay, because, because football contracts specifically are very different than any other contracts. Right. There's there's ways in which things are weaved in there. And obviously it's evolved over time as well. But okay, so so take me to your brain. You're in your early 20s, you're looking at a contract. What do you learn? What is it, what is unique about a football contract? And what do you have to know in the business that people outside of the business have no idea? Well, you're gonna love this because I know you're such a team-oriented guy. I remember the first thing I thought when I saw the rookie deals. Uh, of you know R- Reggie Williams and a couple of guys that were were drafted the year I was uh, down there, uh, I remember thinking to myself Jimmy Smith and and Fred Taylor and some of the more proven players. I was like, wait a minute, these rookies are making a ton of cash, right. and these veterans seem to be kind of grinding it out on the backside of their careers. And because a- as you remember, um, with the Sam Bradford, you know, kind of that, uh, that was the tipping t- point, right? The fifty That's million, right. fifty million, fifty million dollar signing bonus. That was the tipping point. And the CBA changed that, and now we have the the kind of the rookie scale. That's exactly right. So I remember uh, that kind of stuck out to me just because having been a part of so many teams, naturally one of your thoughts is when you read any type of legislation, how does this impact the team, right? How does it impact how people think of each other in the locker room? How does how does it impact the flow of the team as we try to go win a championship? And so I was really fascinated by, by that. So I would say the first time I ever read an NFL contract, I, I thought to myself, well, what's what's this guy two lockers down thinking of this, you know? Um, and, and I remember the implications of that and understanding, you know, a little bit of how the payouts work and a little bit how the cap and cash, you know, different parts of the contract uh, worked out uh, in being educated uh, by them. And then Stephen Drummond was a, a mentor of mine. He was, uh, uh, I think at the time, assistant director of PR down there at um, in Jacksonville. And so I learned a lot of press release, how to do a press release, press conferences. I would help set up for press conferences, things like that. Um, and uh, remember, you know, what a, obviously a big, big influence uh, the media is on all uh, sporting events uh, and really in the sporting industry, um, especially within the NFL, because it's, it's probably the top platform in our country. So it, it's really interesting, right? Because in when you and I connected and um, the presentation that others have made about you is like, not a football guy, right? Like he fly, like right, like that's that was how you talked about the media, how you were presented during your time in Houston. But here, you know, you have sports background, which translates to any sport. While in college, you know, you spend time around the Jaguars. You get out of college, you're with the Jaguars. Granted, not necessarily on the football side, but you're around an organization. Um, and when you're a curious, intelligent person. You're learning kind of as as you go, 
So again, like your, your story is very different than the one that I, I believe many people have presented. So you get done with college, you've done this, you've done some stuff. Did you apply for a job with the Jags? Did they want to hire you right away? What, what's your thought process on what you want to do? And then how did you, what did you execute? Yeah. So um, after that initial experience in Jacksonville, one of the things that was very interesting was um, obviously being from Columbia. Uh, and like I mentioned, going to the University of South Carolina sporting events growing up, um, they had hired Dave Odom as their basketball coach. Dave, obviously, uh, you know, Rodney Rogers, Tim Duncan, you know, did a great job at Wake Forest. And in a different way, brought the same national clout that Lou Holtz brought uh, because he had been to the yeah, I don't know if that's a just good very. I, I I think different. Lou obviously, outside of uh, the insular world of college football, is was a national name. Yes, you know the time with the Jets, Arkansas, Minnesota, um, but Notre Dame is it's just a different animal. But Dave Odom, within the scope of basketball for basketball people, right? Dave Odom brings the same level of respect. Like, oh, you hired Dave Odom. Okay, you got serious about basketball. That that That's right. that may be fair. That's exactly right. And so, I had been recruited by a lot of small colleges, as I mentioned, and played college basketball. And so, I, I loved the NFL and had interest in that track. Um, but then, as a result of um, my grandparents, uh, actually, my grandfather uh, or my grandmother passing away, and my grandfather needed some medical attention and needed some help. I spent some time uh, right after graduation back in Columbia. And while I was there, Dave uh, and his staff reached out to me and said, hey, you've had this career. You've done some different things. Uh, would you be interested in coming down and helping us run camps uh, and potentially help us with study hall and help mentor some of our players? And uh, I said, sure, let, let me come down and meet with you. And so it was kind of camp season. And so Jumped in, you know, as as anybody does who's done college basketball camps and uh, been a part of that community. Um, and uh, Dave and I just hit it off. Uh, he was a mentor to me. Um, and since that was my hometown and could help my grandfather with his health at the time, uh, I lived with my grandfather and then began to work at the University of South Carolina. And even though the NFL had always kind of been this uh, goal for me, sure. um, I was like, whoa, you know, SEC, hometown, you know, a new coach who was really having some success uh, there in Columbia, um, you know, and an opportunity to have a, a role there uh, within the basketball team, a sport I had played, chose to go back to Columbia uh, for my first job, real full, you know, full-time impact uh, there in Columbia. And it was amazing. Dave Odom, uh, and I tell people this a lot of things, and Doug, you will get this because you've been through this, this mantra, is when you play two games a week, right, and you're in the SEC – and you have to obviously you're you're you know obviously the schedule is is massive right so you're whether that's traveling whether that's just you know wearing a suit on the bench whether that's being organized about how you need to do you know your own personal things to get through uh you know the college basketball season um it, it teaches you so much so dave odom was a huge mentor to me i mean I would go over, he lived in a, an area called Shandon in Columbia, South Carolina. And um, I would go over to his house in the mornings. Uh, I'd be there at 6.30 every morning and we would go on a run. And he was a little older at the time, um, but we would run, let's just call it a couple miles at a you know decent pace, nothing, nothing. We weren't breaking records. Um, and then we would walk a mile after we, we ran and he would allow me to ask him questions uh, during that walk. And so I would ask him everything from, Hey, when do you wear a blue suit? When do you kind of wear a black suit? You know, when do you communicate frustration with the media and how you're kind of pissed off at maybe this beat writer and, and what he's saying, or when do you, you know, kind of flip a script on your team to try to change behavior or how many guys do you recruit from one high school? Is it, is it, is it, you know, is, is there a pipeline strategy within certain high school programs that are successful or, Hey, does a guy from California transition well to uh, the East Coast to a small school or small state like uh, South Carolina? And uh, I asked him everything and would go home and just take a massive. I had a journal and I would just write, just write all types of notes. And Dave, being a high character, consistent, experienced voice within college basketball, opened all of these doors for me and my family um, immediately. 
I mean, he made calls to people that, you know, from Roy Kramer, who was a commissioner of the SEC at the time, to, you know, people obviously around the Southeast, uh, to helping me run a five-star basketball camp, to uh, Craig Littlepage, who was the AD at Virginia. Uh, and he had a great relationship with Craig going back to his days at Virginia, to Donnie Holland, to, you know, and so all these doors began to open. And again, I was just running with Dave in the mornings, right? Helping him with study hall and running his basketball camp. And I mean, I was so blessed because here comes the door swinging wide open. Um, and he really set the tone for my entire sports career, uh, both administratively uh, and uh, in the athletic arena. What did you do next? Well, so the University of South – so Dave retired. The University of South Carolina hired me as kind of a character coach. Um, and, uh, you know, I obviously was in the academic uh, kind of world uh, within um, the athletic department. And they hired what does, what does a What does a character coach do? So each team has its own mantra, you know, and how each operational strategy, right? So, you know, whether that's meeting once a week or whether that's, you know, setting a theme early in the year, whether that's having, you know, captain's meetings, whether that's all these different uh, kind of uh, strategies that each team has. And so uh, originally with Dave, it was, you know, we would have a captain's election process. We would have, you know, different coaching meetings throughout the week. And, and he would ask me things like, hey, you know, do we need to meet more? Do we meet, need to meet less? Do we need to add a captain? Do we need to have this player maybe uh, speak to the team who, uh, you know, is is got a prominent voice and can help us learn? Um, and so he was uh, uh, very well respected within the athletic department. And so he uh, asked me to go reduplicate those same suggestions with some of the coaches he was friends with. Um, the baseball coach and him were close, close friends, the track coach and him were close friends. And so I was blessed to go uh, into the different sports there at the University of South Carolina and just help the coaches. Um, you know, we led Bible studies. Uh, obviously, we got to know a lot of the athletes uh, on campus. Uh, and mainly it was geared around, you know, helping each team become the best version of itself. And so character coaching was essentially just creating curriculums for the different sports um, that would help them throughout the year, help get the good people to the front, um, help the team sustain optimal success, um, and then obviously creating uh, good systems within the team um, that hopefully helped it annually get better and improve. Um, what? Uh, so okay, so you're so you're a character coach at South Carolina. Was there a was there a goal that okay, this is what I want? Were you? As you said, you took copious notes of your conversations with with Coach Odom. Um, like, are you are you thinking, okay, college basketball is what I want to do, mentorships what I want to do, get back to the NFL? Like, in your mind, what was your what was the ultimate focus? What was the ultimate maybe achievement? Well, I would say, um, you know, after several years of working uh, at the University of South Carolina within um, the different teams. Um, uh, South Carolina had hired a new athletic director, Eric Hyman, and Eric was uh, kind of similar uh, in my life uh, as Dave. Um, and I began to have an opportunity to meet with Eric because I was working with different sports and would have a chance to pop in his office and uh, receive that same mentorship. So athletic administration began to be um, you know, one of the things I began to be curious about. And uh, Eric at the time uh, in a small market uh, at, you know, in Columbia, South Carolina, he rebranded a lot of the financial structures, um, whether it was seat licensing or it was how the donor programs worked. He rebranded the entire uh, donor base uh, and or donor strategy um, for the University of South Carolina. And what that resulted in was essentially a facility launch um, and a facility redo of almost every facility at South Carolina. And so Eric is doing this, let's say, um, you know, this highly academic um, administration strategy while Dave and other coaches are doing a good job, you know, sustaining programs. And so it was really a... Um, an amazing time to be at the University of South Carolina. And so I think Eric really 
um, seeing him succeed and seeing us, you know, build a new football facility and build obviously uh, a new baseball stadium and seeing us, you know, my hometown at the university of South Carolina, seeing this stuff go so well. And then, as you know, between, uh, 2007 and then 2011 at the University of South Carolina. I mean, a baseball national, couple baseball national championships. You mentioned Lou Holtz is kind of tenure ends, and Spurrier is now kicking butt and taking names. And so, all of those successes really grew in me. Man, I would love to be a part of something like this, where sure. I'm helping lead from an administrative standpoint. And Eric. Uh, similar to Dave, uh, opened his Rolodex to me and, and got me in relationships with different places he had been, uh, having been the AD at TCU and, and, and other places before that. Um, so uh, administration began to be a little bit of my itch. Uh, and then also being able to lead people uh, and help them from a character uh, and faith perspective. Um, you mentioned your faith, you know, and part of it is, again, how it's how it's presented to people outside first you know in the south the presentation of faith as a part of sports is very different from the rest of the country mm-hmm. um how, what 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 portion of your life in your early 20s was your faith and what's that like within the world the structure of a massive state university yeah, that's a great question. I, I would say my faith really is, uh, it means everything to me from the standpoint of who I am and, and how I operate. Um, I feel like a lot of times, uh, again, it, it's sometimes difficult to explain within you know the higher level media outlets. Um, and sometimes people misunderstand um, the different levels of, of faith and or how faith uh, impacts your ability to, to lead. But uh, I believe my faith and my belief in, in Christ and who he is has been nothing but a positive for my ability to lead. Uh, I think he's taught me humility because that's demanded of you in scripture, right? And I think that he's taught me empathy, which is a huge part uh, of understanding, you know, leading people and how to understand their stories better. Um, and I think that when you're at a state university or you're in, uh, in a sports team where people believe uh, different things, you always have to be respectful of other people's faith and other people's journey and, and where they're at in those different moments. Uh, but I do believe your faith allows you to, um, you know, govern yourself and or have something governing you so that you can be more sustainable. Um, and in, in moments of adversity for me and my family, uh, our faith has been uh, just a bedrock of helping us get through those times and helping us help others uh, get through those times uh, without in any way being forceful of them. And listen, you know, we look at Frank Wright just hired. Uh, there in Carolina, uh, who was the president of a seminary, or Tony Dungy and his amazing influence on sport. Um, obviously, Dabo Sweeney, who's a good friend of mine, uh, whose faiths, all their faiths have a huge part of their lives. And I would say the same of my family is that we we try to do uh, right by God and right by others, which is commanded of us, um, uh, but have never, you know, imposed that in any way. Uh, this, this, any- is, this, this is a question I have, and um trying to figure out a way to, to word it, but I think what happens is when people present themselves as somebody who uh, is a, a man of God and faith is strong in their life, that for whatever reason, there are others. And look, I've, you know, I'm obviously of the Jewish faith, but I'm not, uh, I'm not as, as forward in regards to it as you would be or, or the others are. I'm also not bothered by it. Like, I, I don't. Again, if, you, if, if it causes you to lead a life where you know, you value others' successes and you have empathy as well as pushing for your own success for the right reasons. Like, does it, I don't understand why it really matters. But just again, the life that you've experienced, and this is only, you're like a third away into your life now, right? Like, this is not, this is, we're not writing your obit. Yeah. But like, Dabo is an example of it. Uh, Frank Reich's an example of it. You're using great examples. Why do you think that there is a sometimes a nefarious tone to how people present um, leaders of teams that speak of their faith in a strong fashion? Why, why do you think that in just again, this is more your opinion. Why do you think that people can put a negative connotation on something that 
in, in the way in which you present it doesn't seem to have a ton of negatives. It's like, like, like Tony Dungy, like, okay. So he stepped in it obviously on social media recently. Yeah. Okay. But to me, a lot of this is like, uh, and stick with me for a second, because it's a weird analogy. It's a lot like what I do for a living, right? When you give opinions for a living, there's going to be a couple you don't agree with. Right? <laughs> anyone who's anyone who says like, I agree with every one of your opinions, like, then I don't really value your intelligence because there's no way. Cause even some of my opinions, I look back five years ago, go like, no, that one was wrong. Those, you know, like says, okay, sometimes you're going to be wrong. So, um, so Tony Dungy stepped in on social media, but part of the reason that Tony Dungy, that NBC is not bailing on Tony Dungy is he's got like 40, 50 years of equity in the things that he's done for other coaches in the mm-hmm. NFL the way in which he's treated people, the things yeah. that he's gone through in his whole life, mm-hmm. right? Obviously the loss of a son, like all of these things paint the bigger picture of who he is. And yeah, I mean, I'm sure he would definitely take it back. Uh, but uh, there's I just, I'm a member of the media. Why does the media at times present people who have faith as a very strong part of the foundation of their lives and they speak about it openly why do do you believe the media sometimes creates it in some sort of nefarious tone? You know, I, I may not get this right, but I really appreciate you diving into this. And I think you like the way this is because I thought about this question in advance of our, our call is I think when you um, communicate with the media, there is a premise of that communication. Right. Or let's say when a name like. Tony Dungy is communicated with the media. I think there's a premise in which that name is prominent. And so, for example, with Tony, just to use him, you know, he's prominent because he's a football coach, right? And so if you just take football coach and you put that on a line as an identity, that football coach comes with expected behavior, right? And so you have this football coach, here's the expected behavior of the football coach. And so then when you say the, the phrase faith leader or pastor, chaplain, those kind of, that comes with expected behaviors. And so I think what happens is when one of those appears to have to be the winner. So wait a minute, which one are you, you know, Tony, are you a faith leader or are you a football coach? I think that's an unnecessary delineation, meaning that I don't believe you have to have uh, one or uh, the other of those as your primary interfact or your primary initiator for you to be able to interface with other people. So, uh, you know, Frank Wright is a former seminary president of the Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, Carolina, but he is also the head football coach of the Carolina Panthers. Like those are both and, right? And so a lot of times what happens is in our culture right now, we look for either or, right? You're either a winner or a loser. You're either uh, on a career upswing or you're getting ready to get fired. And I think because we have that need for those identities to not coexist, uh, I think sometimes we resent or we try to you know, put down one of them just for the other one to make sure it wins out. And so, um, you know, in my case personally, like I think probably it was more of an exposure thing. You mentioned the runway that that um, you know Tony had, or you know that Davos had, where they've experienced, you know, obviously publicly have a runway uh, of being a part of it. in the issues where I was able to be a part of, you know, some uh, some of the success, let's call it, of program building, both at the University of South Carolina or going through what we went through in Kansas City. Uh, or potentially serving uh, New England for a while, there was no public-facing piece of that. And it wasn't appropriate. It really wasn't appropriate for me to have a public-facing, you know, as a 25-year-old at the University of South Carolina when we won the NIT championship. It wasn't appropriate for me to run to the front and say, man, I'm so glad we did study hall, you know, and we got Ronaldo Balkman eligible and Trey Kelly you know, was able to, you know, play because he, you know, made a good math grade or it wasn't appropriate for me to run to the front after, you know, Javon Belcher and the challenges we went through at Kansas City and say, you know, what a blessing it was for us as a um, as an organization to rally behind the Belcher family and give tons of resources to their family and create a trust fund, which, man, the, the Hunt family handled that so well uh, in such a bad situation but it wasn't appropriate to have that discussion at the time, uh, nor was it appropriate for me to say how how well I believe that Robert and Bill handled uh, the post-Hernandez challenges. Um, those weren't appropriate for me to give 
uh, credence to publicly. And so if I had, and that had been the track record, then I think people would understand how those identities go together. Um, I completely agree. I completely agree. I completely agree. You, you know, honestly, like here's, here's, uh, there's obviously an expression that I know, you know, is when you ask people what business they're in and you're like, Nope, Nope. You're in the people business, right? Yeah, that's right. We're, we're all, we're all in the people business. And, um, you transition from college athletics to the NFL, but the entire time you're in the people business. That's right. And, and like, you know, getting kids, getting kids to buy into study hall, getting kids, being a character coach, understanding how they have to evolve as human beings. That's just coaching them as people, right? Relating to them as people and drawing on your faith as a way to bridge that gap is a very natural thing, a very normal thing. It's a common ground, yep. especially in the South, but it's a common ground that, that you can find. It's, it's fascinating. All right, part two, we're going to drop this probably tomorrow, get these things going. They're really, really good. But I appreciate Jack and all the time and effort he spent in putting this together. A reminder, the Doug Gottlieb Show is daily, 3 to 5 Eastern time, 12 to 2 Pacific time. Your iHeartRadio app or on Fox Sports Radio or FoxSportsRadio.com. I'm Doug Gottlieb. This is Oval. Winning is an everyday mindset. And we're here to help. I'm Craig Robinson. Join me and Coach John Calipari for Ways to Win. How do you play? How do you work when you're not at your best? Coach Cal and I will share some wisdom from our time coaching, and we'll apply that wisdom to your off-court challenges. you got to win every day. Find the Ways to Win podcast anywhere you listen. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.